This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Thomas Jefferson designed two walls. The first is the marvelous circumlinear wall that surrounds the courtyard of the University of Virginia. And it's beloved by its faculty and students so much that as far as I know, no student has demanded that it be torn down despite Jefferson's slave owning past. The second wall is the one Jefferson established between church and state, a phrase the Supreme Court has used to interpret the freedom of religion clause in the First Amendment to the Constitution. This wall could be torn down, or at least some damage could be done to it, some say. Well, the First Amendment itself says nothing about a wall. Instead, it says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Over the decades, the courts have interpreted this clause in so many different ways. It, it has as many twists and turns as that wall around the courtyard at the University of Virginia. But the Supreme Court's expected to hand down a decision in Carson versus Macon that could add a new twist to, to this uh, second wall. And uh, the case involves David Carson, who wants Maine to pay the cost of sending his child to a private religious school, saying his family's entitled to it if other families can get that help to attend a private secular school. So that's disputed by the main commissioner of education, Pender Macon. And uh, the whole issue has gone to the courts and is going to go to the Supreme Court uh, later this fall. And the lead attorney in that case I have with me today, uh, he is uh, Michael Bendis, who is at the Institute of Justice. And uh, that's an organization that has uh, litigated many of the freedom of religion cases that have come up in, in recent years. So I am very excited to have uh, Michael Bendis with me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Bendis. Thank you for having me, Professor Peterson. I'm happy to be here. Why does the Carson family claim that um, their, their rights are, are being um, unconstitutionally deprived in this situation. Sure. Uh, the Carsons live in a town that doesn't operate a public school. And Maine has a law that requires a town, if it does not operate a public school or if it does not contract with the school to educate students in, in the town, uh, then it has to pay tuition for the children in that town to attend the public or private school of their choice. Um, it can be inside of Maine. It can be outside of Maine. It can be public, it can be private, but the one thing it cannot be is sectarian. Uh, and the state defines that to mean any school that engages in any kind of religious activity or provides religious instruction. Uh, the Carsons believed that uh, a religious school was best for their daughter. And uh, they were entitled to this tuition benefit because they lived in a town that didn't contract with a, a school uh, or provide its own public school. So they were eligible for this tuition benefit, but they were prohibited from using it at the school they thought best for their daughter simply because that school was religious. And their point with this lawsuit is that's discrimination. It violates the free exercise clause as well as the establishment clause of the, of the First Amendment. And we're optimistic that the Supreme Court is gonna see it the same way. Well, you know, how does this get to the Supreme Court? There can't be very many people up there in Maine who live in a school district 
without its own high school. So you, you got to be talking about a few hundred people. I, I don't know what the number is, but it can't be very many. It, it, it is actually a good number. Maine is a rural state, and there are a number of towns that don't operate um, the uh, their own public school. And so there, there is a good number of, of students, but really this is a bigger issue than just Maine. Um, the question of whether government can exclude religious schools in a student aid program, or more generally, um, religious providers from other types of be public benefit programs is an issue that has been plaguing uh, the lower courts for a long time. And it looked like the Supreme Court might resolve it um, last uh, year when they decided Espinoza versus uh, Montana Department of Revenue, and they did resolve it in part, um, but there's some unfinished business and, and this case uh, hopefully will uh, resolve this issue once and for all. Well, as I recall, Espinoza decided that the tax credit program in that state, which had been decided by, I think, uh, the Department of Education, they said it can't go to religious schools, even though it can be used for other private schools. They, they said that's unconstitutional. And, uh, but, but, the, but the First Circuit Court of Appeals said that this is very different from Espinoza. So I, when I first read it, I said, well, they're almost the same thing, but <laughs> the First Circuit they were the same thing. <laughs> But yes, so Espinoza, as you note, held that um, while a state need not subsidize private education, if it does, if it chooses to do so, it cannot single out and exclude private schools solely because they are religious, because of, of their religious affiliation or their re religious status. Um, the First Circuit, four months after that decision, after the Espinoza decision said, well, Maine's not really excluding schools because they are religious, because they have a religious status. Maine is excluding them because the student's tuition benefit might be put to a religious use at a religious school. And that's somehow in the First Circuit's mind different than excluding the schools be simply because they are religious. So basically what the First Circuit is saying, we recognize that you can't exclude schools because they are religious, but it's perfectly fine for a state to exclude schools because they do religious stuff like teach religion. Um, that is an absurd distinction. And again, we're very confident that the, the Supreme Court will see it that way. Well, it does seem to me to be an odd distinction, but they do decide, the Supreme Court does decide in, Timoth in Trinity Lutheran, uh, this uh, case that developed out of Missouri, where uh, I think Missouri said, we're not gonna pave the playground of Trinity Lutheran, but they're gonna pave everybody else's playground, uh, private schools, public schools. I, I think that's, the, I got the details right there. So, so, and then they sort of suggest, because you know, you don't teach religion on the playground. So uh, this is sort of a case of a, the school has a status of a religious institution, but the use of the government money here would be to play games, not to study religion. So there is a distinction between use and status being developed there, I think, in Trinity Lutheran, is there not? The court certainly preserved the possibility that there might be a constitutionally meaningful distinction. Um, there was an infamous footnote in the Trinity Lutheran decision uh, where the court said essentially all were 
addressing in this case, all we're resolving in this case is the exclusion of a, of a religious school from a playground resurfacing program. We're not addressing other types of exclusions, such as exclusions that, that turn on religious use. Again, the court noted the possibility of a distinction, but it certainly didn't endorse a distinction. Moreover, in Espinoza, um, Chief Justice Roberts writing for the court said that nothing in our opinion is meant to suggest that some less searching level of scrutiny would apply to Montana's exclusion if it was use-based rather than status-based. So what he's saying there is don't take Espinoza, don't take this distinction or don't take Espinoza and, and our um, focus on the religious status of the school as suggesting that we would subject a religious use-based exclu exclusion to, to, to any less um, uh, lesser level of constitutional scrutiny. So I, I think that's a pretty clear indication that the court will ultimately see these things as effectively the same and subject them to very, very rigorous scrutiny. And if the, if the government can justify its exclusion, strike it down just like it did the, the exclusion in Espinoza. Well, I, 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 I follow what you're saying there, but there is this Davy v. Locke case, and I can't remember who's whom there, but Davy, I think, is it Davy or is it Locke who's the student that wants to go study to become a, a minister or a rabbi? Davy, it was Joshua Davy. Yeah, so Davy uh, uh, wants to become a rabbi, and uh, he thinks he should get uh, government assistance to uh, a, a loan or a fellowship or a scholarship or something to help him with his studies. But the Supreme Court rules against him because it's not who he is. It's not his status, but it's what he's going to do, which seems to suggest there is a distinction between your status and what you're going to do with the money. Locke, as, as you know, Professor Peterson, did uphold an exclusion from a, a higher ed scholarship program. So Washington State had a program where you could uh, obtain, it was a, a need and merit-based scholarship. You could use it at religious or non-religious schools alike. Um, the one thing you couldn't do was major in devotional theology, which the state defined as um, a theology program preparing persons to enter the ministry. Um, other, other than that, you could attend a religious school, you could take religious classes, including religious classes required by the university. Uh, the one thing you couldn't do, though, was, was prepare for the ministry. And you're right, the court upheld that exclusion, but it did so for a number of reasons that just aren't present in the main situation, right? First of all, they noted that Joshua Davey wasn't forced to choose between his religious exercise rights and his receipt of the scholarship because the court noted that he could still study uh, 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 devotional theology for the ministry on his own dime and still use the scholarship to attend a, another university and uh, get a, another major and another degree. That, that might be a little bit unrealistic, but it's completely unrealistic in, in the K-12 context, right? The, the Carson family uh, couldn't send their daughter to a religious school on their own dime during the day and then send her to another high school uh, for another eight hours of instruction at night using the tuition uh, assistance benefit. So, so unlike the situation in Locke, the main exclusion absolutely forces families to choose one or the other, their religious freedom or the government benefit. Moreover, the court noted in Locke 
that the exclusion was targeted to an essentially religious endeavor, training for the ministry. And the court noted that dating back to the founding, states have always had an interest in preventing public the public from funding the religious training of ministers, that one narrow thing. And so the court said, in light of that founding era interest in not funding this one particular thing, uh, we think this exclusion is permissible. Maine's exclusion, on the other hand, has nothing to do with people training for the ministry. It has to do with excluding uh, students from a, a, a K-12 school or a, a high school um, that fully satisfies the state's compulsory education laws. And it excludes the school only because it provides religious instruction. That is a much, much different situation from the very narrow exclusion you had in Locke. So, you know, I, I do think Locke was wrongly decided, but it certainly doesn't look anything like the situation we have in, in Maine. Yeah, well, this Davy or or Locke v. Davy decision is uh, it may be being eroded too a bit by Espinosa and this whole distinction between use and status. May I mean actually it, we talk about the free exercise of religion, but what's exercise of religion other than how you use your religion? I mean, it's the very word exercise in the Constitution itself. I think. Uh, Michael McConnell in his amicus uh, brief uh, actually points to this. Exercise means exercise. <laughs> it meant it in the late uh, 18th century, and it still <laughs> means it today. And, uh, and you're right. Th this idea that uh, the free exercise clause protects your right to believe, but not your, act to be to, but not your right to act on those beliefs uh, is just it contravenes the plain text of, of the clause itself. And the Supreme Court has always recognized that the clause protects not just belief, but also conduct, your right to act on those beliefs. It should be no different here. Um, and again, the court has never endorsed a status use distinction. I think the, the problem is in Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza, um, both of which were written by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, the chief has a, a tendency to take an incremental approach in, in resolving cases. And so he focused on the fact that the exclusions in those two cases turned on status because in his view they did, and he didn't want to, I, I think, say anything more than, than needed to be said to resolve that well, he, particular he, he broadened his majority, I think, didn't he? Didn't he get a, a good-sized majority? In, certainly in Trinity Lutheran, yes, it was a 7-2 decision, um, as opposed to Espinoza, which was 5-4. Um, but yeah, perhaps that was the reason for, for taking the narrower approach to get a, a broader consensus on the court. I obviously, you know, I'm not privy to, to those discussions in, in the, the justices' chambers. But, but I think the important point is that he certainly was not endorsing any kind of distinction between status and use. And to adopt such a distinction like the First Circuit did here contravenes a long history of, uh, of precedent where the court has, has made clear that the free exercise clause protects both status and belief on one hand, but activity and conduct on the other. But I, I, got a, I, I was totally fascinated uh, when reading the uh, uh, McConnell uh, brief where he points out that um, uh, Jefferson did make that distinction. He said, you know, people should have, uh, 
should have uh, certainly the freedom to believe whatever they wanted to, but not necessarily the right to uh, exercise that belief. And, and, and actually Cromwell had that position. He said, well, I'll, I'll murder this, those Catholics if they, if they go to mass, but they can believe anything they want and that's just fine. So it goes, there is this, uh, a distinction drawn by fairly significant people historically between uh, who you are and what you believe and what you do. And, but thankfully the first Congress, when it adopted the first amendment and sent it on to the states for ratification, went with the term free exercise as opposed to say liberty of conscience or something similar. And, and the, the historical record and, and Professor McConnell's brief, I think makes very clear that that was a deliberate choice. Uh, there were proposals to protect liberty of conscience uh, and they specifically rejected those proposals because they wanted to ensure that Americans would be free to not just believe, but to act on their beliefs. And it was for that reason that they went with the term free exercise in the First Amendment. Yeah, well, James Madison had a lot to do with the writing of the amendments to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. And uh, I guess, according to the brief, he, he was uh, one day um, confronted with Baptist ministers being... Um, I've forgotten what they did, horribly treated uh, uh, during the colonial period and was uh, scandalized at that fact and, and realized that really it's the exercise of belief that we really need to protect. And, and thankfully that uh, that view prevailed uh, among the framers. So, um, and, and I would commend uh, Professor McConnell's brief to anyone interested in, in the history of, of the free exercise clause. It's a fascinating brief and I just, I think it does a, a devastating job in, in taking apart this notion that there's some constitutionally meaningful distinction between religious status and religious use or activity. So the first circuit points out, however, that uh, the school that the Carson children would uh, attend probably if, if, if they were uh, allowed to, uh, if the Supreme Court rules in their favor, uh, forbids the hiring of homosexuals. And um, that, that sounds like clear discrimination on the basis of uh, sexual identity and practice. Um, is the court really willing to um, uh, make a ruling that will allow that? Maine's, Maine has attempted to obfuscate this case by um, focusing on the hiring practices of the, the schools that our clients want to attend. They're doing that to deflect from the discrimination that the state itself is engaged in. The only reason these schools are excluded from participating is because they provide religious instruction. Uh, the Maine Human Rights Act, which the state has pointed to, has exemptions for religious schools. And so uh, the, the, the hiring practices of the schools, the particular positions that the schools take on certain social issues, is utterly irrelevant to the legal issue in this case. In this case, the question is, can the state discriminate against someone simply because they desire religious instruction for their children? That is the only issue before the court as much as Maine tries to pretend otherwise. Well, one, um, one thing that they are doing is they're allowing some private schools who hold chapel, well, chapel sounds like a religious term to me, but they, they don't, they use it for ethical discussions, allegedly, instead of for trying to convert people to a set of religious beliefs. And so 
Maine Department of Education actually says it's all right to hold chapel so long as you talk about climate change or, or, or something like that, rather than, you know, about, uh, you know, the, the Old Testament. So what's the, uh, how can they sustain that? Position? That That's a great question. <laughs> so yes, there, there is an instance of a school, a Cardigan Mountain School, uh, which has a chaplain, which has compulsory chapel attendance, and that purports to teach universal spiritual values and truths. Um, understandably, in light of the religious exclusion that Maine has, when they applied to participate in the program, Maine said, well, hang, hang on a minute here. It looks like you're a religious school. And after about a four month back and forth, the school was able to convince the state regulators that it that the, the principles and the values that it taught were universal spiritual truths and not necessarily taught through the lens of a particular faith or denomination. And that satisfied the regulators. The school was allowed to participate. Um, th and that just illustrates another problem with Maine's exclusion. Yes, it discriminates against religion. It also discriminates among religion. Some schools get by. Those that are su sufficiently irreligious perhaps religious in name or religious in, in affiliation can participate, but those that actually put their faith into practice that teach uh, what, what they believe, those schools are excluded. So a Jewish day school, sorry, not allowed. The local Catholic parish school, not allowed, but you can go to the Cardigan Mountains of the world. Um, the state will pay for you to go to Miss Porter's or Avon Old Farms, these elite prep schools, some of the most selective schools in the country, but a child can't go to an Islamic school down the road from her house. And, and that is just an absurd distinction. Well, so um, you're pretty optimistic. I, I, hear, I heard you say, uh, what are they, if the court decides to go with the main department of education, how, 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 would, they, how would they decide that? What would be the basis for that? I, I certainly hope they don't go that direction, but I, I suspect what they would do would say that there is a meaningful distinction between use and status and that the First Amendment, the Free Exercise Clause, doesn't actually protect exercise. I mean, I, I don't know how you write that opinion other than the, the, the approach that the First Circuit took, which is just to ignore the plain language and the history of the Free Exercise Clause. Um, I certainly don't think that the court is going to go down that route. I don't want to get uh, too optimistic here, um, but I think it would be a very, very difficult position to take to say that even though in Espinoza, we said religious schools have to be able to participate on equal footing with non-religious schools, we didn't mean it if the schools actually teach religious things or engage in religious activities. I mean, that that would be... I think a, a very strange position to take, and I don't think it is going to be the, the position. That the well, it's has. hard to imagine that they would have taken the case at all if they were inclined to say, I mean, it only takes four people to bring a case up, but if you're going to bring the case up, you better have that fifth vote. You don't want to, you don't want to lose it. So it's hard to believe that there aren't five votes there, but are there more than five votes? Uh, you know, in, in my mind, Professor Peterson, this shouldn't be a liberal or conservative issue in terms of jurisprudence or politics for that matter, right? This is fundamentally about can the state exclude on a grounds protected by the First Amendment of the United States Constitution? 
That's it. Can this can a state discriminate in an otherwise generally available public benefit program? You can use this to attend any other type of school, public or private, in state, out of state, even out of the country. And yet Maine is saying the one thing you can't do is use it to attend a religious school, even though that very thing is protected by the First Amendment. It is, it is the First Amendment. Um, and so in my mind, this should not be a left-right liberal conservative to the, to the extent those terms even make, make sense in, 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 uh, in jurisprudence. This is a, a fundamentally uh, American issue. Can government engage in discrimination? And ideally, I, you know, I think we would have nine votes. Do I, do I realistically think that? Probably not, but, but it should be that way. Well, you know, if it is uh, clearly, if it is decided, uh, in, in the favor of the Carson family, this would be quite a transformation of the meaning of the freedom of religion clauses over the past 50 years. I mean, 50 years ago, we had uh, um, cases being decided that any entanglement of the state with religion, if there was any money being spent for at a school that was uh, a private religious school, or, or there was any other involvement of some sort, the, the, the entanglement would be, um, would, would raise eyebrows as to whether or not this expenditure. Now we have the court considering a case that they cannot give the money to a private religious school if they're going to give it to others. That, that's just about a 50% of 100% turnaround, isn't it? Well, it, it, there's certainly over the last four or five decades been um, an evolution in the court's free exercise and establishment clause jurisprudence. There's no question about that. And I don't think that's any truer than in the, the particular context of this case where you're talking about aid to individuals. Um, you know, I, I like to draw a distinction between institutional aid cases and individual aid cases. In the institutional aid context, the government is just directly providing funds or some other aid to an institution as such. Um, there's been a transformation in the court's cases concerning that issue, but again, even more so when it comes to individual aid, because when the government has a program like Maine does, it's not providing money to schools, it's providing money to families, and not a penny flows to any school, religious or non-religious, but for the private and independent choice of parents. And that the court, the court has said that that private choice of parents breaks any link between church and state. And so the government simply doesn't have a justification, certainly not in this context, uh, to say you can't use this benefit at a religious school, just as the government wouldn't have any justification for saying you can't uh, use your Medicaid benefit at a, at a Catholic hospital. Um, it's, you know, just as the Medicaid aid, uh, Medicaid program is designed to, to, to provide medical benefits to individuals, school choice programs are designed to provide educational possibilities to families, not to schools. And it's the private choice of parents that decide where this money is used. And in that context, there truly has been a transformation in the court's understanding of, of, uh, of the free exercise clause. And it, I, I'm quite confident that uh, the court will see this, this program, this private choice program, as requiring government neutrality, meaning government can't play favorites between religion and non-religion. 
But if this decision goes in favor of the Carson family, does this open up the religious, open up the, the way for religious charter schools to form? After all, charter schools are institutions that are being made available to nonprofit entities to operate and the government finances them. Wouldn't it be discrimination against religion if somebody forms a religious charter school? I, you know, uh, people debate that th this case doesn't have anything to do with that issue. I mean, charter schools are unique, but they are ultimately public schools. Um, this, this case is about private schools. And as Espinoza made clear, the state doesn't need to subsidize private education, but once it does, it must remain neutral as between religion and non-religion. And that's all this case is about. I know that, you know, there are people who debate the charter issue, um, th this, this case honestly just doesn't involve, uh, that situation. And I don't think that however the court comes down on this, I, I don't think you're going to be able to take that and, and apply it neatly into the, into the charter context, which again, they're, they're, they're not traditional neighborhood public schools, but at the end of the day, they, they are public schools. But there is a choice of whether you go there or not. I think this is a, I agree with you. This case doesn't decide that for in one direction, but I'm sure it's, a, it's an avenue that might open up if, if for at least for discussion and, and deliberation downstream. And I, I think there are good arguments uh, on, on the issue. It's just, you know, th this, this is a private school choice case. And I, I certainly, particularly given how cautious the court has been in Espinoza and Trinity Lutheran, not to say too much, I suspect that they <laughs> won't say too much uh, where, uh, you know, it, it, it would, uh, you know, resolve more than, than, than the case actually presents. Well, the court has an instinct for its own preservation, but I think in this case, they can, they can decide on what they see as the merits of the case without worrying too much about this. I don't see this as, uh, as uh, nearly as controversial as many of the other cases that they are uh, confronting this term. I, I think that's right. I think this is really you know, completing the, 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 the business that, that Espinoza didn't complete. Um, and again, I attribute that just because the, the Chief Justice is cautious. He takes incremental approaches to cases. Um, and, you know, he, he went half the way in, in uh, or the court went half the way in, in Trinity or in Espinoza, um, but it left open this unresolved question about use. And I think that they've taken this case to finally address that, that issue. And it should really be an, uh, an easy case. I don't, I don't see this as a particularly difficult case at all. Um, and, you know, I think at the end of the day, the court is going to say, you can call it status, you can call it use. It's religious discrimination either way, and it's unconstitutional either way. I mean, the Chief Justice Gorsuch, or Justice Gorsuch, I should say, um, had this great line in one of his concurrences. I can't recall if it was Trinity Lutheran or Espinoza, where he says, you know, look, it's really just a matter of how you frame the question. Are you asking, you know, does the state discriminate against Lutherans? Or are you saying, does the state discriminate against people who do Lutheran stuff? Either way, it's discrimination against Lutherans, and either way, it's unconstitutional. I mean, that should be a, a non-controversial um, idea, and, and I, I really do see this as a, as a relatively easy case for the court to decide and should be non-controversial. Well, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us today, and I look forward to hearing your arguments uh, before the court in the coming term. 
So I've been speaking with uh, Michael Bendis, uh, senior attorney at the Institute of Justice and a lead attorney in Carson, or the lead attorney in Carson v. Macon, which is a school choice case that the Supreme Court is expected to hear this fall and decide this term. So thank you, Mr. Bendis, for joining me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Professor Peterson. I'm very, very uh, grateful for the invitation. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.